podcast for Friday 24th of November with me Ian Welsh. Lots of voices on the podcast again this week. Recently I spoke with Rodrigue Creelman from Mars and Veronique Bouvet from ProForest about a new piece of research led by ProForest and the Tropical Forest Alliance examining how companies can help accelerate progress towards nature, people and climate goals on a landscape level. We talked about the importance of corporate leadership to drive this and of peer collaboration. And from Innovation Forum's recent Business Action on Scope for Emissions event in Washington, D.C., we have insights from Oatley's Ashley Allen and Altruistic's Seth Hamid. That's all to come. First is some sustainable business news. To set the scene for the upcoming UN COP28 climate talks in Dubai, the United Nations Environment Programme has released its latest emissions gap report that concludes we are looking at up to 2.9 Celsius of warming even if countries fully implement their plans to cut carbon emissions under the Paris Agreement. If current net zero goals are met, then temperatures will still increase by 2.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels. For warming to be held at 2 Celsius, global emissions will need to drop 25% by 2030, the report says, and to achieve 1.5 Celsius, emissions will have to be cut by 40% in the same period. UNEP says that these cuts will have to come, by and large, from developed high-income economies and individuals, with 10% of people contributing almost 50% of emissions globally at the moment. On the plus side, the report does highlight that national ambition on climate is improving, with commitments to 10% more reductions now than in 2015 when the Paris Agreement was formulated. UNEP is calling for a rapid increase in carbon removal in addition to reduction via such methods as afforestation, soil and other ecosystem carbon sequestration and storage in geologic formations. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation has called for a revolution in the use of refill packaging as part of a drive to significantly cut environmental impacts. A new report from the foundation highlights that only 2% of products from the largest food and beverage and personal care brands are currently sold in refillable packaging. Scaling this up to 40% would cut up to one-fifth of the flows of plastics into the oceans, the foundation says, making it one of the biggest individual opportunities to reduce plastic pollution. However, this is an example of something that is definitely easier said than done, as it would require collaboration from regulators, brands and packaging suppliers, with a significant redressing of extended producer responsibility policies. Not least of the challenges would be persuading brands to shift away from bespoke packaging, and there would of course need to be a process of internalising costs for companies that previously were externalised in the form of single-use throwaway packaging. We featured PepsiCo's Positive Agriculture Outcomes Accelerator in the past, and this year, the Accelerator's third, has rewarded farm projects in nine countries across Europe, South America, Asia, Australia and Africa. The programme provides farmers with funding and connects them with local agricultural technology startups. In Australia and Colombia, there's a focus on regenerative agriculture. For the former, PepsiCo will be testing practices to improve soil quality and reduce emissions while maintaining yields. In Colombia, projects will look at how cover crops impact soil erosion levels and fertility. Increasing efficiency is the focus of projects in India and Iraq. In India, PepsiCo will be supporting work on precision fertilising, important both in terms of economics in a time of high fertiliser costs and soil impacts. A project mapping water risk management for Iraqi potato farmers will also benefit from accelerator funding. For companies across many sectors, tackling scope 3 supply chain emissions is a key challenge. The concept of insetting is emerging as one of the solutions that can help, but there is a lack of consensus as to exactly how the process is best defined and implemented. 
A new report from the International Platform for Insetting is designed to help. It sets out why alignment is urgently required in insetting best practices and how companies can track, measure and report in the context of overall emissions reduction targets. The report says that insetting projects, where a company works with suppliers to enable projects to cut emissions, can play a significant role in Scope 3 emissions. A big challenge is establishing project boundaries. For example, in agriculture, if companies can account for only for on-farm improvements or those in a wider production landscape. The report highlights potential confusion as to where a scope 3 reduction ends and a beyond value chain mitigation claim, as defined by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, begins. Overall, more consensus is required on measuring, verifying and attribution of project impacts. That said, despite the current lack of clarity, it does seem that incenting will play a significant role in how we account for value chain decarbonisation and ensuring that every stakeholder is playing their part and able to take the appropriate credit. I spoke recently with Rodrik Kruman, Corporate Sustainability Governance Manager at Mars, and Veronique Bouvet, Deputy Director for Responsible Sourcing at ProForest. We discussed the conclusions of a new piece of research from ProForest and the Tropical Forest Alliance into driving progress on nature and social targets at a landscape level. So Veronique, uh, what are the main conclusions from the report? The report is actually, it's a paper that ProForest developed together with TFA, as you mentioned, as part of a series. There were further papers that looked into the role of the private sector investment and engagement in landscapes, in particular to address commodity-driven deforestation. And what we see is, and the, the paper describes how companies, and then in particular looking at the forest land use and agricultural sector, are investing and engaging in landscapes to deliver positive impact on climate, nature and people, as you mentioned, starting initially to look at addressing and tackling deforestation at scale, recognizing the need that this could not necessarily be done by working alone and within supply chains, but really the need for collaboration to address systemic issues and root causes that are underlying the deforestation, which, or amongst others, uh, the recognition to work with local communities and people, but also, importantly, the local governments who are essential in framing and delivering these enable conditions like land use planning, monitoring, enforcement, etc. Sort of describes this trend of private sector investment from, in particular, again, this land use and agricultural sector to really address deforestation and work beyond their supply chains in collaboration with local stakeholders. So it describes about that. Also, how the the same land use sector is actually responsible for about 23% of all land use emissions and thus contributes about 23% of the climate change and the global emissions. And thus there's real opportunities and a role to play for the private sector who are taking this responsibility by the fact that they, for example, have taken on more commitments, net zero, and also now picking up more commitments on having a positive impact and address on nature. At the same time, this report describes that yet, even though we see sort of an increased investment and engagement in landscapes, if we look at what we need and investments that we need to address the current nature and climate crisis, these investments are actually also a drop of what is needed. And we need far more investments to address all of these greenhouse gas emissions that can be reduced from the land use sector. The report for example, quotes that a study that identifies that we need about 436 billion 
dollars by 2030 to do that. It then talks a bit about, okay, we need more investment. How can we do that? There is a lack of guidance for the companies and claims that they can make. So how can we help build that business case? We see significant progress by frameworks who indicate and, and set accounting rules for the private sector. How do I account for my emissions, etc.? So we see that trend coming up. But at the same time, the report concludes there is a bit of a mismatch still in terms of how these focus on targets, setting targets, accounting versus that real urgency and action that we need and incentivizing that. So that is an overall conclusion from the report. And then it has some recommendations as to how these can be addressed, uh, some of these conclusions and, and needs for further investment and what can be, uh, what can be done. How do you think the private sector's engagement on landscapes approaches is evolving? There is an increased trend. Eh? We saw from CDP who keeps track and has uh, reporting from companies that are investing in landscapes and reporting that they engage. That has quadrupled if we look from 2021 to 2022, from about 50 to uh, less than 200. Again, overall realization that there is a need to collaborate to really work beyond supply change. It's cost efficient to do that. At the same time, the need to scale up. So the private sector engagement, how that's evolving. I think companies are looking at to how they can catalyze additional investments, looking at how can we build on the Red Plus framework. So these are already established frameworks, which give some sort of level of security for private sector to link and engage to these more jurisdictional Red Plus approaches, Red Plus being reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation. What you also see in terms of how this is evolving is that many and several companies have in addition to no deforestation commitments, also taken on commitments to protect nature, this net zero, as I just mentioned. What you see is also now trying to look more holistically rather than having these targets, okay, I need to conserve so many hectares, I need to restore. How can we do this holistically and combining these targets? So combining nature and climate targets, etc. And for example, you see, if we just look a little bit outside of the forest and land use sector, there's also lots of like, for example, oil and gas companies, tech companies who are also investing. So how can we collaborate in particular areas where we want to address deforestation, where we want to conserve or restore nature? And for example, this is by thinking about nature-based solutions, which there are also new developments like WWF recently launched Nature Beast Solutions at jurisdictional level. So again, trying to bring these together and looking at combining no deforestation with nature and climate goals is, I think, what we see evolving in terms of trying to make the links to landscapes, which was initially commodity driven, linking that to nature and climate targets. So did the research find in particular any progress through landscape scale action that's impacting positively on climate and nature? What are the key examples of progress that you found? I think where we've seen progress is in the need to invest and engage in what we also call these enabling conditions or multi-stakeholder partnerships. 
there was also specifically in projects like smaller scale, but to really reach scale and ensure long-term benefits where you see is by working with local governments, for example, making more planning for conservation and restoration at scale. We've seen trends where companies have invested in replanting, restoring areas that were deforested in collaboration with local governments. See also the engagement and the recognition to work with the local communities who are also guardians of the forest and the nature. So working specifically and more holistically with the local communities in these areas. Also the link to these nature-based solutions, combining the carbon and the nature elements and not just looking at the supply chain. Looking at the areas where the companies are sourcing from and valuing the nature within it. So that means not just looking at and working at the farms, but also looking at specific areas, connectivity, etc. We see some of these trends in some of the landscape initiatives that we describe in the paper as well. Thanks to me, the t- companies really now begin to think about what target setting really needs to look like and what reporting against those target settings needs to look like. Anything you want to highlight from the report about how those reporting and target setting frameworks on climate and nature in particular are developing? Yes, yes, because on the one hand, there are frameworks that have been designed to measure impact and progress at the landscape level, for example, like Landscale and SourceUp and also the Forest Positive Coalition uh, has developed a framework. But as you say, there are lots of efforts being taken to develop frameworks to account for the impact on climate. The most known one is the Science-Based Targets Initiative, specifically also for the private sector to help in terms of carbon accounting and target setting, and then how then emission reductions that can be accounted for. Similarly, there are frameworks and there are several actually on nature as to how to measure impact on nature. You have the Science-Based Targets Network again, who has a land hub, if we are specifically looking again at the land and agricultural sector, has developed some rules for measuring impact on nature and biodiversity. But these frameworks basically have really a heavy focus on the target setting. And the paper actually also identifies that there is actually a delay in that delivering to action. And these are at the same time quite complex. What we also see is that in particular, the one, the science-based target initiative that regulates and the greenhouse gas protocol that comes with it, that sets the accounting rules is really focusing and can only account at this very moment on what you reduce at the farm. So has a very limited scope and does not recognize at this very moment for companies to account towards their emission reductions, anything that they invest beyond that farm level. So we see that as ProForest and we have developed with some, some peer organizations as a limitation, because we think that if you're looking at what is needed in terms of action for climate and nature, is actually that investment beyond the value chain and the collaboration with these other stakeholders, as mentioned. So feel that the big gap of these, in particular, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, is that they don't recognize that investment at this very moment. At the same time, we should say that they actually realize this and are with their beyond the value chain mitigation, working on rules and accounting rules beyond the value chain, but that is still voluntary and does not have a clear incentive now that those actions will be officially recognized in the accounting. What we see in the science-based targets for nature, what I mentioned, for land, they do recognize landscape level investments. So that is and can be, we hope, a very clear incentive, in particular, if companies are 
combining more holistically climate and nature. And then hopefully that drives a focus on more action. Rodrigue, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on Vernique's synthesis of the report and how does it reflect on how Mars engages with your supply chains around these jurisdictional landscape issues on climate and nature? You can sort of summarize how we engage with our supply chain in two main ways. I think there's really the shallow but wide approach, things like certification, uh, purchasing behaviors, things like that, where you can really try and cover 100% of your certain commodity or something like that. But really what it gives you are going to be assurances, not guarantees. And there's a whole theory of change of that trickling all the way down to the ground for actual change. So I think, yes, there's this wide approach where we can send market signals and be very clear as a brand what we're looking for, what we think the new normal should be, what kind of assurances should be traveling with the the volumes that we're buying. That said, we know that that's not going to solve everything, or if we have to wait for that to live up to its full potential, it might already be too late. So I think there's also other types of strategies that will look a lot more like a quite narrow but deep approach. So of course, you're going to pick a focus area. There should be many ways to define that focus area from, of course, high risk, but also potentially a lot of sourcing activities that you may be doing in that area. And I think these approaches are what we're here to talk about, right? Like things like landscape projects, jurisdictional approaches that are there to, again, support these wide strategies, but really go much, much deeper in a way that that some of these other strategies don't. Because they are there to try and crack systemic issues that I think things like certification might not ever get to. So it's really about picking an area and understanding what are the dynamics at play? Why are we seeing these negative trends for emissions, nature, etc.? And then what are the right ingredients to start getting those dynamics to flow in a much more positive way, hopefully here in a forest positive way? This has been an approach that certainly Mars has tried out for multiple years now. For Since around the second half of the 2010s, we've been investing in a number of landscape projects or jurisdictional, mainly on paper and palm oil. These have been more mature approaches. And really the idea was, well, we're never going to cover everything with these types of projects. They're very long-term. Again, they're quite narrow. They need uh, sustained, significant funding. But part of the theory of change was that they were there to prove what is possible. If we have the right ingredients, the right stakeholders together, we can unlock some of these challenges and hopefully inspire to replicate the approaches and start covering more and more of the globe with these projects so that this narrow becomes wider and wider, even if Mars isn't necessarily the one doing it. You mentioned market signals. What do they look like? Is is that basically using spending power as a driver there? And if so, are you engaging then with your procurement colleagues? Yeah, we are. So with the procurement colleagues, we've had plenty of years now to really be clear on what is it that we want? What's realistic? What can we ask and expect from our supply chain? And of course, working in collaboration with groups like the CGF Force Positive Coalition, where we're actually banding together to make sure that we have consistent and aligned signals so that suppliers understand, okay, they really want this. They're really talking about this stuff. We can walk together with this wide view and approach that helps us do that. So again, certification was one of them. I think it's it's still a very valuable approach to basically say, look, you give us assurances on the quality of what you give us, the price, everything else. Why is it so much to ask today to ask for some assurance of the environmental quality or the social quality of what we're buying? What then can a company achieve on its own? And where is collaboration essential to address the climate and nature crisis? 
If you recall the old CSR theories of change, I mean, what companies can really control is what we do is our, our core business. We can control the products that we make, how we make them, what we make, how we market them, and what we buy for them. These are going to be the direct control things and a lot of the things that we work on. So for example, in my current role of doing impact accounting, we want to make sure that these considerations, whether it's GHG, water, or social metrics, are sitting there in front of decision makers for all of these things across the business, because that's what it's going to take. But these are going to be really the core things that we can realistically do and be expected to do, I think. Beyond that, once you start going outside the sphere of influence, if you will, then you start having that influence with suppliers, with customers. So how we interact with them. So examples we just discussed would be would fall under that. And so certainly these continue to be things that we can do, but our impact starts to dilute, of course, because we are just one company. And this is where it's important to band together to have a more unified message and increase our ability to influence that sphere. And then lastly, and I'm being simplistic here, but then there's the really wider sphere, things like on the ground, farmers on the ground, maybe companies closer to the ground, all the way to the other side too, consumers, how you influence consumers, et cetera. But basically, the further out you go, the more collaboration you need, because it's less and less our, I don't want to say role, we have a role to play, but Mars wasn't built for sustainable development on the ground. We want to see it happen. We want to contribute to figuring out how we do it. And we want to be at the table with the resources that are required to do it. But of course, Mars is not going to start building teams on the ground necessarily everywhere to try and change and do things that are up to ultimately the local community, the local government, and how we create those connections really is what I think we're here to talk about. But so yeah, collaboration really just becomes incredibly important. We, we can't be seen coming into some of these areas and say, oh, well, it's got to be done this way, that way, and that way. Wait, what do we know? It should really be up to the people that live there, that are operating there every day. And again, our role is to empower them and make sure that we are aligned on what we want to achieve and we figure it out with them. Is part of the whole landscape approach then thinking much more holistically? I mean, you, you mentioned establishing connections with those on the ground. It strikes me that peer-to-peer -peer collaboration at a grand level can be really effective there because you're approaching them with different voices, wanting different things. If you agree, how do you think that effective peer-to-peer -peer collaboration can be established and maintained? So again, yes, that's a, a, such a key ingredient, especially when I was mentioning that these are deep but narrow. If we want to start all seeing benefits from these projects that would cover more and more of our volumes, we have to work with our peers. It has to be one of the absolute pre-competitive collaborations that brands like us do, and hopefully we'll leave really a legacy behind of this opportunity that we have. But of course, it has its own challenges. It has a ton of opportunities. And again, I think they're summarized by the fact that the more of us do this and do this in a line step, the more we all benefit. That's the simple answer. But some of the challenges that are going to come around how we account it, actually, which is a lot of it is in my current role at Mars, which is quite fascinating, is how do we create that feedback loop in a way where all the peers are going to feel like it's been an equitable way to do it. Of course, everybody still wants to, while we want to be pre-competitive, we want to make sure that there are certain guardrails, that if you're investing more, then perhaps you get more of the return. But so I think there are considerations like that that we need to crack through. And a lot of these frameworks should be there to help us do that and facilitate that. To get back to the core of your question, like peer-to-peer -peer is important. And what do we need for that? Well, we need common and aligned goals. So again, either we all have our aligned, similar macro goals. We all more and more refer to the same frameworks, the same protocols. More and more legislation is coming back in the back of that to solidify a lot of these concepts. And of course, again, I'll, I'll plug it one more time. The Force Positive Coalition is an opportunity, and there may be others, to do that kind of alignment. It's also an opportunity to identify identify priority overlaps. 
ideally the collaboration is in everyone in their corner and then we'll see how we did. We can see, you know, oh, you're sourcing there too. That's great. Why don't we figure out a project that makes sense for this area together? I think that it's finding the right partners. Again, like I mentioned earlier, we shouldn't be the ones literally going on the ground and doing these things. I mean, of course, we should be implicated and we should understand what's going on, but we got to find a multi-tiered partnering mechanism from local on the ground to maybe coordinating entities in the middle, all the way to us as supporters and resource providers as well. And then we all have to commit. I mean, that's always sometimes an ingredient that may be overlooked. Commitment is going to be key. And then, yeah, I'll go back to my point of that's really the challenge. And I think the clear governance on how we attach our collective outcomes into our individual commitments. And for that, yeah, it's all about this data feedback loop, data, 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 data. And that's uh, I think that's the next horizon of, of challenges for us, for sure. Leadership from the top is clearly very important. Are there any obvious things from your perspective that you think would convince company leaders to use the landscape collaborative approach to achieve targets on nature and climate? I think the big keys are going to be some kind of argument around a return on investment. You've heard Veronique mention it multiple times, the word investment, investment, investment. And it's true. Often these types of projects don't come with guarantees. They should be seen literally like an investment, except your return is going to be hopefully an environmental and social KPIs. Being able to formulate that value proposition is really the key and perhaps the barrier to scale again today. I think in the past, we've been able to be involved in these projects for reputational purposes and the narrative that it provides. And it continues to, to pay dividends, if you will, to some degree, but it's a barrier. Very simplifying things here, but if we take the narrow view of GHG, if I could say, well, this project is estimated to reduce X thousands of tons of GHG, and you turn that into a price per ton of carbon, you can start translating everything you wanted to say into business language, into a way where you can, again, have a clear answer on what the value proposition might be. And I think it definitely starts there, but there may be other opportunities as well. Veronique, let me turn back to you. How does the approach that you've just heard outlined from Mars reflect what you're seeing in other brands, other companies? What Rodrigue was just mentioning and setting out for Mars, we definitely see with other companies. What Rodrigue said is basically, we all agree that it is important to take action. We all want to have that impact on the ground. That's where we want to invest, etc. At the same time, for a downstream company, what is sort of our role, right? How can we make sure because... As Rodrigo was also mentioning, not sort of the core of our organization, yet we want to have that positive impact. We see that very much with other companies in terms of how do we make sure that we can deliver that impact on the ground where it is needed and then link that and match that to these commitments that we have. How to match that up, I think, is one of the key questions that companies are looking into. And then in that realm of commitments, high level accounting, trying to get that and sort that out, we want to have impact on the ground. Very much looking at how do we then cost this? Because what is then our business case for doing that? One of the issues is that because of the accounting and thing is currently not clear, Business cases at this moment are, it's about resilience for the farmers, local communities, but also the areas where we are sourcing from. And in order to ensure long-term sourcing, I think there is some business cases that can be made with regards to regenerative agriculture. But at the same time, more and stronger incentives are needed to convince management that, as we mentioned earlier, that this investment is needed and actually does make business sense and is for the long term, does make economic sense. That is where there is a role to play for these frameworks that are being developed on these accounting rules. 
I think these frameworks would need to recognize the investment that delivers the impact that we need and that we all want to see, and maybe shift a bit towards having more KPIs that recognize that. So yes, we see the same issues coming up in other companies, and that's, I think, why they are also trying to collaborate to also see how they can, as a group, increase the leverage that they do not have as an individual. So it's basically, how can we share, collaborate, mitigate the risks in areas where we are, but also share successes? I think there's really that willingness to collaborate. Rodri, what's next? What do you think about next at Mars? And then how do you think the positive momentum that it feels that we're really developing now, how can that best be maintained going forwards? The next step for us is how we get that feedback loop. How do we start getting measurements back? How do we get data back? What are some of the options that we have on the table and what do they incentivize? Some of them are better for leaders to be able to demonstrate all the leading work that they do. And those are great, but those might have other downsides where they don't really incentivize scale. We have to dig into that. And and Mars, we're we're very keen to crack that because it, it works for landscape projects. But honestly, it's the same thing for any other project that we might do directly on the ground, whether you call it landscape or not. If it's a region act program, it's the same concepts. It's how do I know my traceability is going to be from there? Do I, am I sure I'm buying from there? How much am I buying from there? For how long? Once you open up the hood of details, we have to crack them. But I think what's next in a more larger sense, start the work now. We know that these are going to be the types of works that are going to be necessary to get anywhere near a net zero commitment or an SBTN permitment or anything like that. So my plea is maybe ironically as an, an impact accountant is start the work. And we have so many good brains on this right now now trying to crack it. I feel like every day there's a new startup with a new innovation to try and measure things. Yeah, start now and let's find forums to to discuss and talk together and actually enact that collaboration we keep talking. And I think that's why we'll keep the momentum going as well. Veronique, for you then, what's next and how do you see the momentum being best maintained? You know, I fully agree. Continue to invest, start now and the existing investment and engagement, there's so much that we can learn. So it's continuing to build these case studies so that we can further build this business case that we so much more need. So I think, yes, continue to invest. At the same time, I would also see and this positive momentum. I think we have these frameworks that I kept referring to and the companies. It would be great to also have a dialogue between the companies from whom the investment is expected and the target setting frameworks to avoid that a lot of the effort and energy is about trying to set the targets and do all the counting, collect all this data. Rodrigo is also referring to sort of data collection and at the same time focus on actually delivering that impact on the ground. So doing these things in parallel and also have and continue the dialogue, I think, with the NGOs. Because I think companies are also worried to invest and do and be accused of greenwashing. Whereas I think the dialogue can be had in terms of, yes, we want and we all want the NGOs, those who set the targets, etc., the impact on the ground. Let's make sure that we have this KPI that also qualifies and, and recognizes the impact on the ground so that we can act now whilst also perfectionizing in parallel the accounting, that balance that could be corrected. And we need sort of a dialogue to continue the process and the the ongoing investments. And do you have a sense that there's also a desire to try solutions now? We're going to need to try solutions that haven't yet been tried. We need to push forward on existing approaches that have been shown to work. And then also has to be a realistic approach to the need that there may be some things that don't work, but we need to try them to see what does work. 
Yeah, and I think there's also great examples of things that are happening already in the Red Plus auto investment. So I think there is also that just try and, and let's do it. I heard only last week some great examples just purely happening in the commercial sector because they're also afraid of being accused and going the route of all the frameworks. So I think it's indeed being brave and trial and do things to deliver that impact and the act now. Rodrigo, final point to you. I mean, are you seeing that level of bravery, the required level of bravery? Are you seeing that now? Somewhat. Yeah. The nature of like the past and like we had the domino effect of campaigning NGO says something, we go, oh crap, we got to do something. So we go and do the project. We build that muscle in a way already. It's now the expectations have changed a little bit. And I think don't be afraid of the complexity. These are complex issues. And ultimately, yeah, they require complex solutions, but we can, if we collaborate the right way, decomplexify them for each partnering entity within it. But really, that's what it'll take. Each case will be unique, but we have plenty of us to learn from and continue to incentivize that collaboration going forward. Thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion, some really interesting points and some really positive thoughts about how these issues can be taken forward. But for now, Rodrigue Creelman from Mars and Vornik Bouvet from ProForest, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Ian. Washington DC at the Future of Climate Action Conference, my colleague B. Stevenson spoke with Ashley Allen, Chief Sustainability Officer at Utley, and I caught up with Seth Hamid, CEO of Altruistic. Hi, I'm here with Ashley Allen from Oatley. We've been talking about product carbon footprinting, so if you could just give like an overview of what your vision and approach to that is at Oatley. Oatly's been doing product carbon footprinting, in fact, actually putting the carbon footprint either on the pack or on our website for a number of years, starting in around 2019 in Europe. And we have it on over 140 of our products, we have that information. Our approach is really to be as transparent as possible and really share with consumers this magical number and really spark that conversation of what does it mean? What is the climate impact of things that I eat and drink and, and purchase on a daily basis? And that that kind of conversation can spark a new curiosity and, and interest in learning more. You're one of quite few brands who are doing this. What would you say is the point in doing it if other brands aren't doing it for a point of comparison? I think it's something that is absolutely growing in popularity and growing in interest. You know, for a long time, people have wanted to have a growing understanding of the nutrition content of their food, the nutrients, you know, looking at the calories and the carbohydrates and things like that. And to me, this is one more data piece that people are now starting to get interested in when it comes to the things that they eat and drink and something that they actually should be interested in. By sharing this information, I think we can start to grow this movement or grow this culture of people using carbon impact as a way to help move and shift their decisions as consumers. And what would you say to companies or leaders who might be afraid of backlash or undermining their green claims? One of Oatly's mottos is to be fearless, in fact, is to be effing fearless. <laughs> That to me is I think where companies have to be in this space because none of us have perfect information. There's a lot of learning left to be done, but we have to put the information out there. We have to start this conversation and that's the only way that we can learn and grow. If we just wait until everything is completely known and completely perfect, how on earth are we going to solve a big global challenge like climate change? It's just not gonna happen. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm joined by Seth Hamid from Altruistic. Welcome back. Thanks, Ian. Pleased to be here. We talked about how leading companies are performing against their climate targets. What are you seeing in this space? How are companies performing now? 
It's actually quite hard to say, Ian. I think we're seeing a lot of moving goalposts. A couple of factors at play there. One is changing standards and methodologies, so flag uh, being an obvious one for sectors affected by that. Another is changes in emissions factors, which is often beyond the control of the company. And a final one is changes in the underlying data that companies are using. So I actually feel the jury is out on whether there's real meaningful progress, especially if you include scope one, two, and three. I'm seeing everything from 2% up, 2% down, frankly. Yeah, we talked about this earlier in the year, but yesterday we were talking about flag and it's still the element of the moving goalposts that people can get very frustrated by, the having to continually get the internal buy-in on the same issues they feel. What are good tools and technologies to help? What do they look like, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a few principles that we always recommend companies look for. One is digitization. So you actually need to try and just digitize as much of your data as possible. There's still a lot of emissions relevant data sitting in disparate systems. Much of it is very analog, receipts, JPEGs, PDFs. And actually getting that into a structure or a database or a data lake where you can kind of work with it is the first piece. The second is you want to be able to curate that data. So I mean, tag that data appropriately. If you bought potatoes, which year, what type, where from, what weight, there's a number of classifications that you need to start associating with the data that you're aggregating. And then finally, I would think about actual usability. What are you gonna be doing with this data? What are the use cases? Often we start with the front end visualization first whereas that's often the easiest part to bring in, actually curating and logging the data and associating it with specific parts of the business, specific activities, is the most important place to start. That's the tricky bit, isn't it? Incorporating emissions data into decision-making across different functions is a real challenge. How are you seeing that developing right now? What we're seeing is most of our customers, for example, are looking for granularity, where initially they would be aggregating data at a high level, treating, let's say, categories of purchases where they're running the calculations on maybe 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 line items of data, which is an aggregation of many subcategories of data, if you will. And we're seeing more companies now move towards much larger scale processing, where they have millions of lines of data being calculated. They're running calculations on the underlying raw data. Think in terms of logistics, you could aggregate up to trip type and run a calculation on a trip type, or you could have each individual trip be its own calculation and then aggregate upwards. We're seeing more of the latter. It's clearly obviously for companies, they need to be able to know how they're doing, particularly performing against their peers. What advice do you give to companies about benchmarking so they get and they know where they are in terms of their performance versus their peers' performance? I would actually benchmark for practice rather than quantitative numbers at this point. What I mean by that is if everyone else's emissions numbers are wrong, there's no point you comparing against that. And if everyone is using different methodologies, there's no point running a comparison. What you can actually benchmark is how are you going about your, let's say, uh, emissions journey. Let me give an example. Most companies that we know are still applying a very small set of unique emissions factors across a very large base of unique purchases. They might be buying 100,000 unique purchases, ingredients, materials across the world, and they might only be using two or 3,000 unique emissions factors. That percentage is problematic. You can get that percentage up. You can start applying 10, 15% of unique emissions factors to your calculations. That's already a significant practice improvement versus what others are doing in your space. And that's a more important metric actually to look for versus just is your emissions higher or lower than a peer in your industry. It is always about the journey, isn't it? Uh, Seth Hamid, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, thank you Ian for having me. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for further reflections from the Plastics and Packaging Conference in October and other events over the coming weeks. 
We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday as usual. But that's it for now. I'm Neil Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.